Welcome to the fifth quarter. Conversations beyond the X and O's with your hosts, Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Join the journey as they learn from coaches, authors, military leaders, successful entrepreneurs, business people, and motivators. Tonight, we're really lucky. We're joined by our new friend, Jim Rafferty. And not only is he a best-selling author, it's a book you're going to want to have on your shelf. Uh, Layson and I both do Leader by Accident, and we're going to jump into that. But he has his own marketing firm, JMR. Um, but I think the biggest thing we'll leave here tonight with is so many little tidbits, gold nuggets, if you will, on leadership that we can all apply. If you're a CEO, if you're a coach, any type of leader. And uh, so, Jim, thank you so much again for, for spending time and joining us tonight. My pleasure. Good to be here. Thanks for asking. Jim, I, I, I want to start with the book, Leader by Accident. I don't want to tell too much, but maybe can you give us a little tidbit about the tragedy that really thrusted you into an unexpected leadership role. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, Leader by Accident begins uh, actually in 2008 when I pretty suddenly became scoutmaster of our son's Boy Scout troop. He was 12 at the time. Um, when the scoutmaster and his wife and their two younger sons were all shot to death by their 15-year-old son, which uh, was every bit as horrible as it sounds. And, of course, you know, made headlines at the time. And, um, you know, John and Tammy, the, the parents, were everywhere in our community. So, you know, my, my little slice of the whole story is hardly worth talking about. But it, it changed things for me pretty significantly because a few, a few days later, I was the new scoutmaster of the troop, which doesn't sound like a big deal. I, I like to say that the scoutmaster doesn't carry the nuclear football or anything. But... Um, you know, they turned to a guy in that moment who really had no scouting experience. I mean, I, I was a Boy Scout for maybe a few weeks as a kid. I really didn't like it. I wasn't any kind of an outdoors person. I, I had held no position in the troop up to that point, uh, except, you know, to try to go along on a camping trip and help out when I could. But um, it, it was an unusual choice at a, a pretty critical juncture for a troop of, you know, about 25 kids, suddenly reduced by three. Um, and... Uh, you know, we didn't know really at that moment if the troop would survive, and it did, thanks to the help of a lot of people of a, a leadership team of a lot of parents stepping up and, and doing more. And those experiences over the next five years, really, that I served as Scoutmaster taught me some things about myself, not only in terms of, of leading a group, you know, the sort of the the, the herding cats part of, you know, rounding up teenagers and, and getting them to do what needs to be done. But, you know, about myself in a sort of physical and environmental sense and, you know, we got out and, and done did the things that I had never done before, you know, the camping and the hiking and, uh, you know, a trip to the high adventure base down there in the Florida Keys and another one to Yellowstone National Park where we backpacked around. And and in between those two, not, not a scout trip, but a uh, uh, my wife and I and another couple hiked down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and against all odds, hiked back out again five days later. So, you know, I, I learned a lot about myself and, and really, you know, leader by accident covers a lot of things. But I, I would say if, if there's really one story, it's how that Scoutmaster experience changed me and then gave me the courage when 
the next thing happened, which was that, you know, I, I lost the job I'd held for almost 21 years to that point and started looking for another job because that was all I knew how to do. It had never occurred to me to do anything other than have somebody hand me a paycheck, you know, and um, the, the the trouble with that was there was not a whole ton of demand for a, a 51-year-old self-taught marketer at that point. And so I wound up, you know, hanging out my own shingle as a marketing consultant. I launched JM Marketing and I'm still doing that. And that was 10 years ago in uh, September. And, you know, it's been just professionally the far and away the best part of my life. And, and you know, I took that step out of my comfort zone into entrepreneurship 100% because I took that first step out of my comfort zone and, and said yes when they asked me to be Scoutmaster. So that that really is the story of the book. And then it goes on from there, obviously. Jim, sometimes there's a succession plan in place. If it's a CEO, they're going to elevate the vice president. Or now even in football, you see the coach in waiting. Other times, it's thrust upon you. Nothing could compare to a tragedy like you talked about. But what tips does a leader make when they get thrust into that role when something good, bad happens? It could be a promotion. Someone left the company and, and Jim, you know, we're going to elevate Layson to the new CEO. What are some initial steps a leader has to take? I, I think the two things that really made it work in this case were one I already alluded to. The, the first thing I did was asked for help. You know, I sent an email to all the parents. I had three good, really good people who stepped up and volunteered to be assistant scoutmasters and who were much more qualified than I was to be scoutmaster, but just couldn't manage the time at that point. Uh, so, you know, the nuts and bolts of the scouting program were covered while I, while I learned and, and grew on the job. And, and the second part really is um, maybe more important, and that is I, I did not hide from my lack of experience and I didn't try to fake it. And, they, you know, we've got that old fake it till you make it saying and all. And I, I think a lot of times the, the proper move is the opposite, to not be afraid to admit that you don't know what you don't know. And the scouts and their parents knew that, you know, the, the boys were in good hands. There were enough people around. But a lot of times when they were taking that first step into a wobbly canoe or, you know, onto the trail, not knowing what's ahead, so was I. You know, and, and that, I think, gave me a, a measure of empathy as a leader, which is, is something I talk about quite a bit also. In either challenge with the troop or with your starting your own firm, to me, you took a chance on yourself. You bet on yourself, maybe by choice, maybe not. But you got outside of your comfort zone. Any advice on how to get past the self-doubt, even when you start your own firm, there has to be self-doubt. You were talented and good what you do, but what do you do when you lay your head on the pillow and you have self-doubt and you have struggles? Are there things that you could reflect now on that, that were successful for you? Yeah, the huge, huge self-doubt uh, in both cases, really, you know, in, in the Scoutmaster thing, but, you know, in, in the latter case, my family's livelihood depended on, you know, whether or not I could make this work. So, yeah, there's a lot of stress and pressure there. Our, our son, the Boy Scout, by that point was a year away from going to college. And, you know, we didn't know where that was going to be yet, but I was pretty sure it would be expensive. And, um, you know, he. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, 
The consulting idea came to me because a few people independently of each other, one from scouting, one from a family connection, one who I had worked with formerly reached out to me and said, Hey, you know, they knew I was, you know, not <laughs> too busy at the moment. You know, could you take a look at this? Could you come in and talk about my website? Could you look at this proposal we have to redo my website from, an, uh, you know, another vendor, that kind of thing. And that, made me think like, well, maybe there's a path here, you know, and all three of those three actually turned into my first three clients and two, uh, three of them, actually all three still are in, you know, in a reduced capacity in, in one case, but yeah. Uh, and, and that's something that's really, you know, uh, for, for me, something I'm very proud of, but yeah, there was huge, huge doubt at the beginning. So Jim, let's say times are going well, you're, we're employed, everything's good. Should you maybe test the waters with something in case a tidal wave comes? Is there any game plan you would say that, hey, if I hit a valley, I might need to pivot quickly. But should you do that? How would you go about that? I think the, the biggest mistake I made when I was employed full-time that, that would have made a big difference going forward, and, and again, I'm very happy with the way things turned out, but I, I think whether you are bound to a desk job or, you know, whether business development is part of what you do at work or what, I, I, I don't think it's possible to get out and meet other people professionally too often. That really, for me, is the key. And, you know, our, our younger generation in the, in the workplace now is, I don't seem resistant to it, but they're, they're a lot more, have much more of a tendency to communicate electronically than to, to pick up a phone or to actually go meet people in person. And that's so important. I, I wish that I'd had the network back then that I've developed over these last 10 years as a consultant. So yeah, I, I think it's really, that would be my number one piece of advice. Yes, you should absolutely have a plan B because you never know what's going to happen. You may love your job, love your work, love your boss, all of that. Your boss might not be there tomorrow. Your company might be sold tomorrow, which is part of the story of what, what happened to me. There, there's more about it in the book. Um, the, you know, the company changed hands and the new guy and I think, let's just say things didn't go well. Um, but you, you don't know. So yes, you should have a plan B. You should, and, and, the biggest part of that plan B for me is having that network. And, you know, I think we have this sense that if we're going to reach out to somebody and say, Hey, can we get a coffee or something that there has to be some transaction there that one of them has to be able to, to do some good for the other. Like if I can't get a lead out of this, I'm wasting my time. Or if I go to a networking event and I can't come home with three solid leads, you know, it's a waste of time. And, and I, I hate those things anyway, which you know, a lot of people do, but um, I, you know, I think that it's it's just so important that we make those connections. And I, you know, I, I just can't repeat it enough that I think, you know, we, we need the network. We need those connections. And, and that, in the end, is going to be your safety net. You know, and, and again, we bring up not only did you bounce back, but you thrived. You took it a few more steps and it's thriving and going. But before that, if we were to look or ask your family, was your personality traits back then of one of doubt or were you a cocky, if that's the right word, confident that, Hey, I know I can do certain things because there were struggles right away. And you had your family, you have college looking at you. 
And, and some people are that bravado, false or not, that I know something's great around the corner and I can get it. But you just, I mean, you excelled, but did you have doubt or were you confident that all of your hard work and everything would pay off? Yeah, I, I certainly had doubt. I don't think anybody who's ever met me would describe me as cocky. Um, probably more more the opposite. I'm, I've always been sort of a suspenders and a belt kind of guy, and which made it even more unusual that I would you know step off the ledge into entrepreneurship. But I I would say you know I I have a quiet confidence in myself and maybe more than in myself in the belief that that things will turn out in the way they're meant to and that that will be a good thing and and in this case it, it certainly has i mean i the the consulting work has taken me to places i couldn't have imagined i mean i i thought you know i came out of the home improvement industry and i thought i would be you know the home improvement guy and i'd work with companies in that space and and i do but i have worked with companies and businesses that i didn't know were businesses back then i you know just across all kinds of spaces all different size companies everyone has different needs so every day is different for me and and i just love it Jim, you, you talked about in the book um, how the, the the Boy Scouts of America, the organization itself, over the last couple of years has had its struggles and, and, and issues. And I'm sure some people probably question, is there a place for Boy Scouts still in this day and age? How would you answer that? I also say in the book, and, and it's a good point, because the you know the Scouts are, are in a tough place. They have, you know, had their issues in the past with you know, abuse. And that's a very real thing. And my heart goes out to anyone that ever happened to, uh, they have put processes and procedures in place to, you know, to prevent that to the greatest degree possible now. But, you know, when they go and try to change with the times by saying, yes, we, we will allow gay adult leaders or, you know, now you don't have to be a boy to be a boy scout. Girls are now getting their Eagle Scout, you know, that kind of thing. When when they do that, then the traditional constituency gets upset and, you know, it leaves. So it's been a difficult go for them. But but here's the thing I, I always say about Boy Scouts. I said it when I was a scoutmaster. I say it in the book, and it will never be more appropriate than talking to two coaches right now. I always say when you were coaching your own child in whatever, baseball, football, soccer, and you really wanted your child to learn something, you sent them to the other coach because you knew they were going to tune you out. The other coach would be able to get through and and teach what you wanted taught. For me, scouting is that other coach. Scouting is reinforcing the things that you're trying to teach at home. You know, leadership and being a good citizen and being responsible and, and being self-sufficient. And, the, you know, the outdoor skills are sort of you know, campfires are the way we get scouts to absorb all that other stuff. I've always said if there were no campfires, there'd be no scouts. You know? But but that's what it is. Scouting is that other voice in your child's ear during a stretch of years of their lives, lives when more than ever now with all the, the things we're consuming across the Internet and, and all that, um, you know, more now more than ever, they need as many positive voices in their ears as they can have. And and that's what scouting does for me. I, I remember that part, part in the book where you talked about that and comparing uh, 
a scout leader to a coach, you know, in terms of, of the role, because uh, there's the constant communication, but also we know that scouting is built on a foundation of values. How important is it for an organization to have those values, but most importantly, the leader that is actually being the role model and displaying those values on a day-to-day basis? It's, it's vital. And I don't care if you're a, a scout troop or a, a fortune 500 company, you know, um, there, there, there's no substitute for that because with, without values, then what do you really, you know, what, what is everything else resting on? So yes, I, I think as a leader, you have to, you have to walk that walk to the greatest degree possible. And you know what? We're all going to mess up. We're, we're humans. We're, we're not going to get every time right. And that's okay. But, you know, I think one of the things the scouts responded to was, you know that that there were good people in charge of the troop, and and not just me by by any long shot. But you know their their parents were good people, and they were being raised well. And the scouting program just, you know, added that extra dimension to that. You know, Jeff asked earlier. You know, talking about the the skills or how to prepare for the, for this moment. You know, for me personally, uh, I was an assistant coach, and then I find out a month before the season starts that I'm going to be the interim head coach. So now all of a sudden I'm thrust into a leadership position that I was not necessarily prepared for in some areas. So based on your experience and, 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 and what you've gone through, is there things you could do ahead of time that sort of kind of lay that foundation knowing that, you know, as coaches, Jeff and I always joked about you the reason you got the job is because, Obviously, somebody else didn't do their job, you know, and so now they need to they need to you know make a change in the direction, so to speak. You know, when when I speak to groups, uh, leadership obviously is a, a a big part of it, and I always make it a point to say, you know, you may be sitting there thinking, well, I'm not a leader, right? You know, I'm you know, and and I always say, I don't care if you're running a company of 200 people or if you're the new sales rep who started last week. Somebody at some place, some part of your life right now is looking to you for leadership. It might be your your child. It might be your spouse, and you take turns doing that, a good relationship. It might be your aging parent who really you know needs you in a way they haven't before. But somebody needs you to lead no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your life. And so to your question about whether it's possible to prepare, I would you know, just as a rule, consume and, and read and listen to podcasts and, and absorb as much as I can about leadership. Because we all know that there's a million different definitions and some of them are going to resonate with you and some are not going to resonate with you. And leadership is a lot of things. It's this amorphous, you know, changing thing. And what we thought was a leader 30, 40, 50 years ago is a lot different from what we think now. We've seen that, I think, a lot in the Great Resignation. So I, I would simply just make it a point to, again, regardless of where you are in your life, I, I don't think you can observe, listen, read, however you consume too much about leadership. All three of us obviously are, are parents of boys, te- you know, teenage boys, and so we know the challenges. And we also know that sometimes you know, younger leaders will kind of become more buddy-buddy instead of being the leader who kind of discipline and demands and, and, but also, you know, there's that, that, that fine line of, you know, relating versus requiring. So what is your advice? Do you, how close do you get, you know, you know, in order to, to build the relationship, but also know at the same time, there may be a point where I have to, you know, bring some sort of disciplinary action or I may have to do something that that person may or may not like. 
Yeah, I don't think those two approaches are exclusive, really, um, or mutually exclusive. I, I, I think, you know, obviously there are times when you have to, you know, for lack of a better term, be the boss as a parent, as a scoutmaster, as a coach, right? Things are going in a direction that's not productive and you've got to reel it back in. And I had the, I had this big, loud scoutmaster voice that I would occasionally have to break out. But, you know, the rest of the time we would laugh and joke and, and that was fine too. I, you know, I think one of the things, you know, we talk about however you want to put it, empathy or really caring about the people who you're leading. You know, I made it a point as a scoutmaster to know what the young men of the troop were doing when they were not at scouts. So I knew what sports they played. I knew what instrument they played. I knew uh, we had one who was in the, the Baltimore Ravens marching band. Uh, and, you know, we'd talk about that. And, you know, when they accomplished something outside of scouting, we made it a point to, you know, just in our closing announcements at the end of the meeting to, to bring that up and give them a little attaboy. Same thing with, you know, once a year I'd sit down with my calendar and put all the scouts' birthdays on it. So that next Monday night when we had a meeting, if somebody had a birthday coming up that week, I, I would mention it. And, all that took really zero time to do, but you know, you want to talk, you you had a guest on recently, um, a guy named James Elliott, and you were talking leadership with him and his three questions I thought were brilliant is number one, do you like me? Number two, can you help me? And number three, can I trust you? Okay. Well, you know, the best way to be liked is to take a genuine interest in somebody else and to know what they're doing when they're not working for you. Um, you know, so or when they're not being led or whatever. And, you know, the only caveat there, I think, is it has to be sincere. You, you can't fake it. You do actually have to actually care about the people you're leading. Jim, it's, uh, I love leadership, learning from leaders, talking. And, and what's great now is the game's changed from, you're a perfect example, Lisa and my parents, everyone, people, they used to have jobs for 20 years. They worked hard. They were very loyal. And they didn't ever leave because that was their commitment to the company. And now that's all changed. And now we have the curveball of COVID. So a lot of meetings are on Zoom. How are leaders supposed to adjust to an employee that says, I want to be happy? You know, you talked about you know, family culture, but you want me, you don't care if my child's sick. You want me to work on the weekends. Um, you, you make me pay for parking a mile away. And how are we supposed to lead? If, if Layson's the CEO, how is he supposed to lead people? Because now it's even harder because most of them are remote. So his meetings are zoom. How do leaders adjust? Yeah, boy, there's so much, and that. that's a really good question, and there's a lot going on there. But I, I, you're you're absolutely right. Like the days of the the 50 year career at the same place in the Gold Watch are, are long gone, and you know maybe that's not entirely a bad thing if you're the person moving from place to place. I mean, for for one, the internet has you know unleashed all sorts of ways to you know to what we call the gig economy you know where you could do 10 different things and make a living scraping those 10 things together and then you could argue that i i do that to a degree with all the, the things i'm involved in and and that's fine but yeah exactly right what you said and and covid was the, the, the most recent i think 
you know, straw that broke the camel's back or, or game changer, whatever you want to call it. Because all of a sudden, you know, there we all were in the office on Friday, happily working together, pretending we were happy anyway. And then on Monday, we couldn't be there, right? And so now companies are scrambling to, you know, to figure out how to connect us remotely so we can see each other on our computer screens. And meanwhile, as a leader, if I'm managing people at that moment, now I not only have to figure out how everybody's going to get their work done when we're figuring out how to work remotely, but I also have to take into account the fact that this one is trying to homeschool her kids. And, and that one has an aging parent who she can't be with right now because we're in lockdown and, you know, any of dozens of other scenarios. So leaders had to reach deeper, I think. And, you know, again, here comes one of my favorite words to, to find empathy and we can maybe partly judge how well they succeeded or failed by the fact that the, the pandemic was immediately followed by the great resignation. A lot of people decided they didn't like where they were. And some of that was probably, you know, bigger picture. Oh my gosh, we've had this pandemic. What am I doing with my life? I'm going to go do what I love. That That's great. And I'm sure there was some of that in, in, God bless the people who did that. I wish them well. But, you know, I've always said people join companies and they quit bosses. And I think a lot of people quit their bosses. Jim, is there a person that's had a big impact on you as a leader, maybe a mentor? And how did that person impact your life in terms of leadership? I would say not a person, but a group of people. Because, you know, if we go back to the beginning of this discussion and that, that moment, those, those first days and weeks after the, the tragedy with the scout troop, to see other people step up and offer to help both as assistant scoutmasters in terms of, um, you know, handling the nuts and bolts, let's call it, of the scouting program that I didn't know how to do yet, right? But then other parents who had no role at all stepping up and answering that call for help and saying, yes, I'll take, I'll be the person who handles all the paperwork. And there's a lot of it for when you want to go on a camping trip this weekend and everybody's got to sign a release form and all the drivers have to turn in their insurance information and all that stuff. I'll, I'll do that. And somebody else stepped up and said, we'll handle this. And, and so all of a sudden you had this machine that wasn't there before. And, and a year later, I, I think I mentioned it in one of the Scoutmaster minutes in the book, but you know, we had this situation where we still weren't a huge troop. We were probably 30 people at that point, but we, we did three different events on a Saturday and we had people cooking for a pancake breakfast, parents in the kitchen cooking, you know, for a fundraiser uh, pancake breakfast who, who didn't have kids going on the trip, you know, that, that kind of dedication and stepping up. So that collectively, I think really gave me a different perspective on, on what it really means to, to lead and to, to put the, the, the good of the group first. All right, let me flip that then. Have you ever been a mentor to an aspiring leader or have you ever asked someone to mentor you and how would you go about asking someone to be, be a mentor? Couple of answers. One is ask, don't just, just ask, don't be afraid to ask. I mean, you will be surprised, you know, when you, again, like I said, reach out to have a coffee with somebody with no agenda, not, you know, I want your business, not, you know, I can do this for you, but could we just sit down and talk and you'll be amazed at how receptive people are to that. 
And a lot of times that starts to connect the dots where they go, you know what? Yeah, I, I really don't need what you do, but you know, this person does, or I really can't help you with that, but I know this lady who, who can, that kind of thing. So, you know, I think that's part of it is, you know, not being afraid to ask and reaching out to people. The, the other part I would say to, to flip it around the other way in terms of mentoring people, part of my work life now is belonging to a, a business community of peer groups where there are a bunch, but, um, you know, basically each group meets on the same day of each month. So say the third Tuesday and we sit down for three hours in the morning and we solve each other's problems. And you, you sort of get some unvarnished feedback about your work life and you get to know each other really well. And it's, it's really refreshing and it's especially good for a solo entrepreneur like me because, you know, I, I don't have that office tribe to bounce ideas off of people and things like that. One of the most rewarding things I've done in these 10 years are bring a, a couple of contemporaries of my son, pretty much. So guys who were in their mid twenties into those groups and to watch them with their own fledgling businesses to, to start to grow and prosper. And one, one of them was, you know, started a video production company out of high school and he just moved into this, I forget how many thousand square foot, uh, you know, production space and, and things like that. And to see the another one met its fiance. So, you know, for goodness sake, you talk about feeling like you made an impact. It's, it's that, that for me is hands down the most enjoyable part of, of what I've done over these 10 years. You know, the word to culture gets tossed around a lot. A lot of people will have the poster in the office, coffee room, locker room. But I, I, Obviously, we would all believe it's much more than a sign. It's, it's all about your people, their feelings about the company, about you, about their fellow employees. I want to talk onboarding a new employee now. If I made you the CEO of Widget Company and you hired Layson and it's an onboarding process, we spent a lot of money doing a search to get him on board. But how do you bring him into the company culture through that onboarding process with the curveball? A lot of this, Jim, is going to be via Zoom. Right. Yeah, the, the Zoom has complicated it. There's no doubt about it. I think, and this is another thing that comes up in these business peer groups a lot is with new hires because it goes south a lot, right? You know, they don't work out. The, you know, the employee isn't what we, we, who we thought he or she was or the company isn't what they thought it was or, or whatever it may be. And, you know, I've always been a big believer. This is more nuts and bolts than, than company culture, but I've always been a big believer in the detailed onboarding plan. So where you have these check boxes and these milestones that are to be done by a certain time, day one is, you know, meet the office staff and here's your copy of the manual, right? By the end of day five, if you're in sales, you should pretty well know the contents of these brochures. And the second week, you're going to do three ride-alongs with other salespeople or whatever it is. But the reason that's so important in as much detail as possible, because it, it gives you this roadmap and you can sit down once a week or once every couple of days or however often it needs to be with the new hire and say, great, okay, look, we did this, this, and this, we haven't done these yet. And so instead of two months later, you've got this vague sense of, eh, this isn't working out, you know, you, you know what's happening and what's not happening. And so do they, so that if it does head in the wrong direction, it's not a big surprise to everybody. So I, I think that that 
that is the best path to a successful onboarding. My hope would be that they would absorb the company culture, you know, in, in throughout the course of that process. And part of that is, you know, there, there's always going to be some kind of disconnect between what you tell them the company's culture and values are and what they actually observe. They, and we can't, you know, they're, they're never identical, and, and that's okay. But one of the things I talk about in the book is from Tom Peters, and I think it's it's a part of culture that we really underestimate a lot. And he says, I, I won't read it to you, but something to the effect of culture is shaped by the way the boss greets the receptionist as she walks in the door. Culture is shaped by the casual comments the boss makes to the three or four people she passes on her way to the desk, um, to her desk. Culture is shaped by the tone and quality of the responses to the emails she makes in the, in the first 20 minutes of her day, right? It's these little things. And, and there, I, there were a couple of stories that things that happened with the scouts that really opened my eyes to the power of language and, and what we might otherwise think of as small talk or throwaway comments or stuff and how those can have a much deeper impact in a good way and in a bad way than, than we thought. So I, th I think that's a big, big part of culture is, the, is the, the language we use and the way we use it. Jim, since you're, you're quoting Tom Peters here, I got to give you one of my favorite Tom Peters quotes. Um, basically, he, he basically said in effect that it's the leader's duty to basically develop his people or her people and, you know, to, 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 to get the, you know, the best version of themselves. And just, if you don't mind, talk a little bit about that. Cause some, I think often when we think about leadership, we think of it more of setting the direction and barking orders versus, you know, being, being the ones that kind of helps to shape and guide those individuals who are doing the work. What, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, good one. Uh, so, we have to learn that being the leader is not the same as being the boss. And and this played out repeatedly in scouts where, you know, some young man would get promoted to, you know, elected as a patrol leader, say, and he'd immediately start bossing around the other members of his patrol because he was the boss now, right? And they would cheerfully ignore him and he'd come to us in tears and, you know, start to understand that that's not how things work. So that that's part of it is that difference between, you know, being the boss and being the leader. I want to go back to something with, within the book, and that was the Scoutmaster Minute. Uh, if you don't mind, talk a little bit about that, because when I read it, it resonated with me because I know that every time I got together to meet with my team, I wanted to kind of set a tone for that day, for the practice or for the game. And it usually involved a story of some type or, or something that where I could get their focus. And it seemed like that's the same thing you were doing. Is that, am I off there? No, 100% right, except that mine happened at the end of the meeting instead of the beginning. And yeah, so the Scoutmaster Bennett is a part of the scouting program that, as the name would imply, is just a brief message delivered by the Scoutmaster at the end of each weekly meeting, basically designed to send the boys out the door with a positive or motivational or inspirational thought. And so when I became Scoutmaster, I was well aware of my shortcomings in terms of, you know, not tying and fire starting and, and all the things you want your scoutmaster to do. But I thought, well, the scoutmaster minute sounds like something I could manage. So I, I made those a point of emphasis for me personally, and I, I worked hard on them, and I kept an archive of them. You know, I, I never wrote them down beforehand. I would, I would deliver them and then type them up the next day, mostly so I wouldn't, you know, repeat myself. And, yes, I use those throughout the book to – 
sort of tee up the next chapter and, and take that message I was trying to teach to the scouts and translate it into something meaningful for you and me and all of us trying to get through our, our business life and, and just our life in general. So it was very gratifying to me that a, a number of our scouts, you know, upon reaching their Eagle Scout rank at, the, at their ceremony, they stand up and reflect on their scouting career. And, and a number of them mentioned those Scoutmaster minutes as, as being important to them. And, and that really makes you feel like you're you're making a difference because as I said, as we covered already, there, there's, there's a lot of noise in the, in the ears of our teenagers. So to know that you're getting through is, is meaningful. Let's talk about a noise in, a, in another, in another setting. And that is in marketing. Um, obviously there's a lot of marketing messages out there, uh, you know, in this day and, and the buzzword that we often hear is brand and building your personal brand. So how do I, as a leader or as a follower, uh, in that sense, how do I build my brand without coming across as arrogant and, you know, tooting my own horn too much, if, if that makes sense? For me, I think the key is to not separate what I'm doing as a, I'm making finger quotes now, leader, from what I'm doing the other hours of my day. You know, if we're really going to boil it down, being a better leader means being a better person. And we talk about this need, you know, coming out of the pandemic for, for more empathy in our leadership and all. And I, I spoke to a group maybe two months ago. It was a, a young professionals group about leadership specifically. And I tried something different for the first time, and I, I think it made an impact. But I, I said, okay, so, so look, be honest now and raise your hand if you're pretty confident that on your drive over here today, Every time it was appropriate, you used your turning signals. And about two-thirds of the room, hands in the room tentatively went up. And I said, including lane changes, and a few hands went back down. So, And, of course, they're all looking at me like I'm completely crazy. And I said to someone, so, so why do we use our turn signals? Well, to let other people know, you know what our intentions are. Okay. And what's the definition of empathy? Uh, putting other people... First, I said, okay, so do we begin to see the connection here? Because I think what happens is, as I said at the beginning here, that, you know, we, we separate, oh, I'm going to be a leader now from, you know, I'm, I'm not leading now. I'm just, you know, going to be whoever I am the other hours of the day. And I said to this group, look, I don't think it's possible to be the person who's doing 85 miles an hour down the highway while everybody else is doing 65, right? Weaving in and out of traffic and treating everybody else like an obstacle rather than a fellow traveler, right? And then get to the office and step across the threshold and say, oh, well, now I'm going to put on my magic empathetic leader hat. You know, it doesn't work that way. We, You know, empathy is in the dozens of decisions we make every day. And I, I use the driving stuff because, you know, it's universal. We all experience it every day, but it's in the way we treat others, whether we're leading them or not. And, you know, we are what we repeatedly do, right? You know, that's how you build habits. So if you want to be a better leader, you know, be a better person. Jim, when you, when you think about your legacy, what, what would you like it to be? What would you like others to remember you for? Oh gosh, I'm not important enough to have a legacy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I I I think I'm fondly remembered by the the scouts who went through that troop at that point, and that is that is very meaningful to me. I have raised uh, we, my wife and I, uh, my wife of 33 years, and I have raised two 
wonderful young people who we're very proud of, and that's probably the greatest legacy I, I could hope for. And, you know, I, I think, you know, people hopefully would remember me as, you know, someone who who spread the word and, and maybe somebody along the way reads the book or hear, hears a, a podcast or whatever and says, you know what, yeah, that, that makes sense, and, and I'm going to change the way I do things just a little bit. That's That's enough for me. Jeff, what I loved about the book and just, you know, having just a few days to, to look over and review it was the message. And again, you know, it's a situation where this wasn't something that he was seeking. All of a sudden, it's it's just dropped in your lap. And now you could choose to respond or you could choose to, you know, to walk away from it. And he chose, Jim, you chose to respond and and, and to, 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 like you said, gal the comfort zone and, and act. And, and that's just, uh, it's, it's amazing. I, I don't know. I don't know many others who, who possibly would, would do that. They would just, they're, they're too busy on their schedules. So they got too much else going on to, to take on this role. Well, one of the stories, I, I'm sorry, Jeff. No, you, no. I was shaking my head agreeing. Lace and nail. Okay. One, one of the stories I, I mentioned in the book, and this actually goes back to the, the, the power that a few words can have that we were talking about a few minutes ago, but, but it also touches on this. And, and into making that decision, to, to say yes when they asked me to be Scoutmaster. And this happened about six months before the tragedy, where I was at summer camp with, uh, you know, helping out, you know, volunteering, just trying to help the troop get through the week. And I took a walk with my son right after I got there around the place, and we're talking, and he's not one to really share his feelings a whole lot, but that would be putting it gently. But... Uh, we're heading back now to the troop campsite, and I said something to them right uh, to him right out of the dad playbook, like, uh, "Well, Matt, I'm glad I could come up and spend some time with you." And he said, "I'm glad too," and that was enough. My, my day was made. But we we walked a few more steps, and he turned to me and he said, "You're one of their favorite leaders," meaning the other boys in the troop. And now, again, this is six months before anything happened. I had no none of us had any idea that that anything like this was on the horizon. I didn't have a position in the troop. And, you know, that comment at that moment sent buzzers in my head going off to say, no, I'm, I don't want a job with the scout troop. I'm, I'm not a leader. I'm happy to come help. But, you know, but then six months later in that awful moment, you know, when it, and then when it became clear that I was going to be asked, you know, I thought to myself, maybe what the young men of the troop need right now is, somebody they like, you know, and somebody they're comfortable with and somebody they feel like they can talk to because we've got a lot of healing to do. And so I said, yes, in the, in the hope that I would figure the rest out. And, and it all turned out as well as it could have, I think. You know. There's so many things, Layson. You and I talked before about just the book, the nuggets we were going to learn. It's been even better than we expected uh, the fact that he wrote a book, that's something Layson and I, Jim, are, are battling, uh, going back and forth. But maybe, Layson, let's have a little bit of fun right now. Uh, Jim, let me ask you. We'll start with an easy one. If you could hit one club in your golf bag pure, what would it be? Uh, driver. Nice. I, I'm... I am uh, I'm the worst of both worlds. I'm short and wild. So, yeah, if I, if I could get out in the fairway a little further, you know, par 4s par or par 5s for me and par 5s or par 6s. So so that would be meaningful. 
All right. One person, dead or alive, pick them. And what question would you ask them? Mm. Boy, that is such a good one. There's so many. Everybody says Abraham Lincoln, and that would be a really interesting conversation. Not Lason. He'll have he'll have musicians. He'll have chefs. You never know what will come out from him. Yeah, that's a good question. Wow. Uh, I could ask Lason. He didn't know I was going to ask it. I'll put him on the spot. Yeah, put him on the spot. I'll think I, about it. I'll give second. you a minute. Lason, I'll, I'll tell you right now, it, this is actually a, an easy one. It would be Winston Churchill. And, and as long as Churchill and I can have a cigar and some whiskey at the same time, I think that conversation would be phenomenal. Just because you look at what he went through in terms of failure to, you know, to again, stepping up in a moment when England is about to, you know, be in, you know, possibly invaded. Now he has to leave this country and build confidence. How'd you do it? You know, what was going through your mind in that moment? Did you think, hey, I could just walk away and just go retire to the countryside and paint and enjoy my cigars and not let someone else have to deal with this? But no, you know, he felt it was his calling to do that. It's so amazing that you say that because, uh, what, just over a month ago, I was visit I visited the Churchill War Rooms in London. We were on a vacation over there. We had a wedding in England and, and built a London vacation around it. And it was amazing. And I just finished reading a really amazing book about Churchill, too, called The Splendid and the Vile. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's no, I haven't excellent. heard of that one. Eric Larson book. Really, really, really good. So anyway, yeah, yeah, 100% with you. I, I would say back to Jeff's question, probably. I, I would probably go with the crowd. I would. I don't know what the question would be, but I would love to sit down and talk with Abraham Lincoln because – a century earlier, you know, maybe even more complicated situation with all the, the political stuff that happened behind the Civil War and the, the, you know, the very grudging move towards, you know, freeing slaves and, and, and all of that. I, I would love to have had a sense from him of what that was really like. Jeff, who's, who, 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 would you, who would you want to talk to? I was going to be shallow and say Jimmy Buffett. Um, but <laughs> I, to me... I would I would want to talk to Jesus and just even when he had the doubt in his mind of why am I going through this like right we all have doubts about everything we do but him dying for our sins and and all of that and forgiveness which we all struggle with it would be a long conversation so Jimmy Buffett got bounced well, that's probably fair. I think Jim, Jimmy would understand. Lason, <laughs> fire some at Jim. Okay, Jim. Besides your book, what you know? What other books have you gifted the most to others? My my new one will be this one I just told you about, the Splendid and the Vile. For anybody like you who's a history buff, it's a, it's a must read because it's it's really almost day by day through the Blitz, largely reconstructed from the diaries of people who were around him, you know, secretaries and, and his, his own family and, and all of that. And it truly is fascinating. And having read that, and then our, our first stop in England was Coventry cathedral, which was bombed, you know, to nothing but the walls standing uh, by the Germans. And then to see them that and the new cathedral built alongside of it. And the, the main message there that's on display is, about forgiveness and you know it was the very first thing they said the very next morning that they would rebuild it but it would be rebuilt in the spirit of forgiveness you know and that that was remarkable to me that that's a very moving place so yeah 
Well, I'm I'm headed back to London in April, so I'll make sure to hit uh, hit Coventry um, uh, yeah. on my on my next trip because uh, I did I was in I was in London about a month ago as well and, and made some stops. Didn't get to the war rooms, but I've been there before. But that was that was next on the uh, that's a, a definite stop again, especially for my son. Okay, I had read in my research that you are a prolific dad joke. Tell her. <laughs> and so I think we need at least one or two go-to jokes here for, uh, for our audience uh, for you to share with us. Yeah. So every Friday on Facebook, I post the uh, Friday dad joke and, and some are original and most are not, but you know, I, I, I try to at least, you know, curate them and, and only do ones that are, are half decently funny. And, and for me, the thing that's really funny about the whole dad joke thing is that, you know, some people will, you know, the same joke every week and, and not the same joke every week, but every week it will happen where I post a joke and one person will go, oh, that's terrible. And another person will go, that's your best one ever. Right. Which I don't, I'm not sure what that says, but uh, there, there's there's some latitude really in the uh, in the Friday dad joke world. Uh, the most recent one, I think, was uh, oh, for Thanksgiving. Right. Uh, saying to the grocery store employee, do these turkeys get any bigger? And he says, no, sir, they're all dead. <laughs> I can remember that. That's good. I like it. It got a thumbs up. Yeah, thank you very much. I yes, that. yes, yeah. I can like that. Yeah. Um, yes, and uh, or you know, someone asked me what the most remarkable invention of the last hundred years was, and I said the dry erase board. <laughs> you, have to, you have to chew on that one for a second, but you know, remarkable. Right. 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 <laughs> Layson's catching on. He was tired. Yeah, a little yeah. slow there. He has been a long day yeah. here. <laughs> if, you to, if you have to explain it, it wasn't a good joke. <laughs> hey, okay, Jeff, before we get to the, the numbers part, now, again, yeah. going back to our research here, what's this about uh, radio career at one point? Uh, broadcasting program manager? Uh, I, I hear the DJ voice in there a little bit during the during the conversation. I was wondering, is this like late night DJ, you know, smooth jazz or... Um, you know, I spent most of I, I was in radio full time for 12 years as an announcer and then a program director. And so, yes, I took the vow of poverty and uh, most of that was spent in uh, what we would call adult contemporary, uh, you know, which back then, you know, now we'd call it soft rock or, or that kind of thing. But sort of, I mean, back to goodness, Neil Diamond and Barbara Streisand in the early 80s on through, uh, you know, Celine Dion and on up to Mariah Carey and you know, then, and, and so on and so forth into the two thousands. And, you know, it was fun because after my full-time career was over, I, I went back to it a couple of times for like a 10 year stretch and then a five year stretch, but just doing, you know, like Saturday mornings or weekend shifts. And then it was fun, you know, when you didn't have to depend on it for a living. And I still do some voiceover work, which is fun. It keeps, sort of keeps my hand in. I have some clients I'll redo, a, you know, do a commercial or redo their phone message, their hold message, you know, that sort of thing. So, so that's fun. But radio is a terrifically fun business if you don't need to make a living at it. No, I can understand. My wife was uh, had spent some time when I met her was in the radio business. She was in the in the news aspect, and of course, you know, like everything, it changed changed overnight. And uh, she went to a totally different field, not related to her journalism degree, and and is thriving in it. So, uh, so Jeff, you got some 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 questions ready? I do. I have a couple more before. Jim, would you rather lose all your old memories or never be able to make a new one? Uh, not be able to make a new one, I guess. All right. After a tough week, it's a 
today. What's on the grill and in the glass? I I like red meat. I don't go. I'm just as happy with chicken, but I would probably do uh, a steak on the grill. A lot of times we'll sous vide a London broil and sear that on the grill, and that's excellent. And in the glass is probably depends on my mood a little bit, but probably a little bourbon or scotch. Do we have a favorite brand? Hmm, that's a good one. I have a bottle of uh, what is it right now? I'm blanking out. I good bottle of bourbon at the moment. I can't think. Of, oh, oh, Weller. Weller is the one that I like, but you can't find. You have to know somebody at a liquor store to to get it. Right? You that, have to that, have that, friends to get Weller. Definitely. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. So my 24 year old daughter is who doesn't drink much brown liquor at all. She's like, why can't you get any Weller, Dad? You know, like I'm not important enough to, you know, to whatever. Okay. Well, you'll ask Santa. All right, Jim, uh, we'll close with pick a number from 1 to 25, and we'll ask you a couple quick hitters. Okay. Am I telling you what the number is? Yeah, pick one. Pick a number between 1 and 25. 12. All right. Did you sit at the cool kids' table in high school? No, not really. I was a band geek. Yeah. So, so in the band, we were cool kids, but, you know, compared to the, the jocks and all that, no. John Lennon or Paul McCartney? Ooh, tough one. You know, I, I think I admire I think I admire Lennon's talent a little more, but McCartney wrote more singable stuff. All right, last one. It can be dead or alive. A golf foursome. Your dream golf foursome. Oh boy. Let's see. Um, Phil, because I'm I'm a lefty. Although I, you know, I'm, I'm not entirely thrilled with him this year and the whole live thing, and just you know, that's yeah. a bit of a black eye. But but he would be fun. Uh, Phil, um, uh, Jordan Spieth, and probably uh, DJ Dustin Johnson, just to just to watch him hit. The, you know, there's a guy who can dunk a basketball flat footed to his size. I, I want to see that athleticism in person. We won't tell Neil Woodson Layson that he didn't make the cut. We, we <laughs> promise we'll edit that out, Jim. I can play with Neil anytime I want. He lives around the corner. <laughs> I just thought he might like to play with Jordan and <laughs> Phil. Besides, he hit me in the arm with a golf ball once. Oh, okay. Yeah, that I, I, would damper I, a friendship. Yeah, I had, I, had a bad, I had the bad sense to be in the cart ahead of where he was with his ball, which was my fault, not his. But yes, I, I was fine. Jim, this has been not only really, really fun, there's so many things uh, I just picked up and learned. And again, Layson and I talk leadership, and you've just added to things we're going to recant. Can you please tell our listeners where they can find the book, find you, everything about it? Sure. The book is called Leader by Accident, Lessons in Leadership, Loss, and Life. They can find it anywhere books are sold, like Amazon or Barnes and Noble. It's available in uh, paperback, in uh, you know, uh, for your Kindle or Nook, and uh, recorded uh, the audiobook, the Audible book was recorded by me. So uh, take take your pick, but you can get it anyway. And any information about the book about me, you can find at leaderbyaccident.com. Layson, tonight was a home run. It was so much fun, and Jim. We both can't thank you enough for joining us. 
My pleasure, guys. Really enjoyed the chat. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the fifth quarter conversations beyond the X and O's with your hosts, Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave comments on social media.